Welcome into Running for the Roses. I'm Ryan Bath Lucas, joined by Lucas Rohde. And Lucas, it's it's coming fast, man. We're about halfway through the college football season. We had our first Saturday in October. We had a really fun slate of games. I'm excited to get into it with you. How was the first uh, How was the first fall Saturday in Nashville for you? Oh well, it felt like the first fall in Nashville um, this season. It was a cool like yesterday. I think the high was about 64 degrees. Nice, cool, chilly air in the morning. Um, like it felt like like football weather. Um, and the games kind of matched that. We had, I think, uh, usually one or two game, two pretty close contested games in about each time slot. But uh, no, it was really, really good uh, here the, the first weekend in October here in, in Nashville. How was it down in the Valley of the Sun? Well, the Valley of the Sun certainly lived up to its name. It was a high of 102 <laughs> on Saturday. Arizona State kicked off at 3.30 p.m. at 102 degrees. Arizona State, the, the hilarious thing is, they planned early in the like early in the season before the the um, the season started. They had planned a a like a a glow in the dark jersey that they were going to wear during the season, and of course they picked Colorado to wear it against. And then the game gets announced for a three thirty kickoff. It's hundred degrees. It was, they were all black uniforms, so ASU had had to pivot and wear their kind of traditional gold maroon gold. So it was a toasty one. Uh, it's supposed to be our last kind of hot stretch of the of of the year, but. Yeah, it was a toasty one. Luckily, I was inside watching college football with the quad box most of the day. So, so that was <laughs> um, All right, so Lucas and I will give out our weekly roses as we do every week. Lucas and I are going to do a fun little experiment here. We're, we're going to look at coaches that were given contract extensions, multi-year contract extensions over the last handful of years. And how are those teams and those programs faring um, as coaches are getting longer contracts, more expensive contracts? Is the um, – is the school and the fan base getting a good ROI on that? I think it'll be an interesting exercise. Lucas and I, it's one of the things that just, I don't know if frustrates is the right word, but it's one of the craziest things that you'll see like, oh man, this coach who's five and six got a contract extension. And you're like, wait, why? <laughs> Who was competing for that coach? Who was offering that coach a job? Um, so we'll kind of ha- have some fun there and, and preview week, week five through kind of that lens. And then a week six preview, we've got some good ones, USC, Notre Dame, We've got LSU, Auburn. We have got um, Oregon and Washington as well. So some 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 fun ones for the second Saturday in October. But let's give out our our uh, our weekly roses. It, it celebrates the best of the week that was in college uh, college football. And I will let Lucas go first with his weekly rose. So I have one mini rose or a tulip, maybe if we want to call it, that I, I like want that. to uh, give out. Um, and this was uh, in the D three. Uh, D3 uh, area um, in my home state, Wisconsin Lacrosse. Want to give them a rose? They upset UW Whitewater. For those that don't know, UW Whitewater is a perennial D3 power. Won a ton of national championships. Lance Leipold, the head coach at Kansas, that's where he got his start. Won seven national titles in like ten years at UW Whitewater. Um, they upset them. It was on a last-second kick in front of a record crowd. For Division Three, it was over 21,000 fans were at UW-Whitewater Stadium to witness a 51-yard field goal by UW-Lacrosse's kicker um, to win that game 37-34 the end of regulation. It was Lacrosse's first win against Whitewater since, I believe, 2004. Um, and that is a conference where you do play each other every single year. So it was almost a two-decade drought 
So kudos to them. Uh, they got a top five win on the road. That should do wonders for the, the playoff committee, um, you know, in D3, where crazy enough, they've been doing a playoff since like the history of that division. But uh... <laughs> crazy how we can literally do a 2014 plus playoff in every single college football division except for the FBS. Crazy how that happened. FBS. Anyway, sorry. I don't know it's, going. Yeah. And it's crazy how impossible it is with all the money and everything that it's just, it's either too much travel or, or all this. But anyways, so give me my, my tulip of the week to UW Cross Back at the FCS level, I'm giving my rose to UCLA, specifically their defense that completely shut down Wazoo um, in their 25-17 to win over Washington State. Washington State was averaging over 500 yards a game. Cam Ward was kind of maybe like a dark horse Heisman. And they completely shut them down. Uh, Wazi was held to about 216 total yards. Cam Ward looked very, very uncomfortable. Was only 19 to 39 for 197 yards through two picks. Um, and just overall, I think a huge win for UCLA. It keeps them in the Pac-12 race. We saw them. They were on a bye last week. And then two weeks prior, did not look great on the road at rice Eccles Stadium against Utah. Um, they only scored seven points. Mm-hmm. Um, Utah really, really frustrated Dante Moore. And look, Utah was playing a second-string quarterback. That win was kind of there for UCLA to take. They didn't. Uh, but I think a really, really nice bounce-back win for them as they continued ahead. And we talked about UCLA. The, the schedule for them is fairly favorable um, compared to uh, the rest of the top teams in the Pac-12. Um, and this was really their first big test, and I thought they passed it with flying colors, even on offense themselves. They almost had over... 500 yards. Carson Steele was a beast, um, had over 140 yards on the ground. So that is who I'm getting my rose to um, is UCLA for that big win over Washington State. Yeah, Cougars, 216 total yards. They committed four turnovers, only had 11 first downs. Uh, UCLA, one time of possession, 38-32 to 21-28. Washington State only had one offensive touchdown because they got a, Mm -hmm. um, a pick six in the first half as their only touchdown in the first half. So, yeah, kudos to the UCLA defense. It's a unit that's very strong. I mean, obviously, UCLA has the loss up in Salt Lake City. But, you know, if if Dante Moore doesn't throw that pick six on the first play of the game, like, there's a – I mean, UCLA hung with them, certainly. And it's really hard to win in Salt Lake City, um, as yeah. as we both know. So, yeah, UCLA is still right in the thick of the Pac-12 title race, although you got three really, really good teams right now, three top ten teams in the Pac-12 Two of them face off this weekend in a game that we'll touch on a little later. All right, my rose is 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 going to go to Georgia Tech, um, but it's it's less of a rose for Georgia Tech, who beat Miami twenty three twenty, and it's more of a, just a com- discussion of the complete and utter catastrophe that was the end of the game for Miami. So for those that didn't see it, and I'm sure the people that listen to this podcast did. Miami has the ball. There's thirty four seconds left. The clock is running. Georgia Tech has zero timeouts, and Miami has a third down and 10. All Miami has to do is take a knee, and the game's over. And instead, Miami decides to run a play. And, of course, the running back fumbles. Georgia Tech recovers, and they have like 26, 25 seconds. They complete a couple passes. They get in Hail Mary range. And then Haynes King, it's not even like a Hail Mary. It wasn't like the ball was tipped or there were some ricochets. The Georgia Tech receiver, I forget his name, forgive me, gets by two Miami defenders, and Haynes King delivers a perfect pass over over his shoulder for a touchdown with one second left. And Miami's perfect season, the momentum 
all up in smoke. I mean, maybe the worst loss for any team since I, I, that I can remember. I mean, the, they, they said the ESPN like win probability chart was 99.9% before that third down snap was taken. And Georgia Tech, which lost to Bowling Green by 11 points, mind mm-hmm. you. Like, that's something that we get lost, right? Georgia Tech, the worst team in the ACC, right? And that's saying something because Pitt and Virginia Tech exist. But, like, Georgia Tech lost to, by 11 points to a MAC team. And they, they were in a game with Miami and beat them. I mean, disaster for the Hurricanes, who were probably in a look-ahead spot as they get North Carolina this week. But uh, Georgia Tech, listen, kudos to Georgia Tech, Brent Key, for, for getting an ACC win. I think it's their third win of the season. So kudos to Georgia Tech. But Miami, yikes, Lucas. Absolute yikes for Mario Christmas. It, the whole game was just kind of weird because Miami – for the most part, was dominating. If you look at the box score, they had almost doubled Georgia Tech on yardage. Um, Georgia Tech really couldn't get too much going, but it was turnovers. I think Tyler Van Dyke had like three picks in that game. You mentioned the fumble uh, that they had had towards the end. But even with that, all you have to do is take a knee, and it's a game, hey, it was a little bit too close for comfort. That happens to every team during the season. But you found a way. You got it done. And now you can advance to going 6-0. I wasn't even, like, I had that game on my, like, laptop. Like, I took it off the top screen because I'm like, okay, they're just going to need this one out. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, I didn't even I didn't even see the play that the fumble happened. I just saw that Georgia Tech had the ball back with 26 seconds left. I'm like, what the heck? How did they get the ball back? Was there a penalty? Did something happen? And when you find out they ran a play, it's just... How does how does that get by? Not just Mario. Obviously, it starts at the top with Mario Cristobal. But what is the offensive? Why isn't the offensive corner being like, "Hey, why are, why don't we just take a knee here?" Or one of the lead assistants being like, "What are we doing? Why don't we just take a knee? We we don't have to run another play." Or if you're a player, why aren't you? We saw on the sidelines Matt Lee, their starting center, was literally just saying, "What the f are we doing?" Yep. Like crying on the sidelines and just saying, "What did we do?" And it, it kind of goes to show, like, Mario Cristobal has not been a great late-game manager when it comes to coaching. He had a similar situation happen to him in 2018 at Oregon against Stanford where they mismanaged the clock and it allowed Stanford to come back in the final minute to tie it, and they eventually won it in overtime. Yep. And like you said, where does Miami go from here? We'll talk about, you know, next week's game against North Carolina uh, towards the end of the podcast, but... This is just one of those where, you know, if you start 6-0, everything's still ahead of you. Now it's like, how do you rebound from this? Because uh, you literally just had a win that you just you, – you that is a literal giveaway. It wasn't like a fluky turnover. It's like you didn't have to – it just it just boggles my mind. No timeouts. It's third down. There's 36 seconds left in the game. One knee and the game's over. And um, I, mean, I still can't get over it, to be honest with you. I, I still can't. Um. So, Dan Wolken from USA Today actually went and looked up box like uh, play by play for Miami, and he he actually figured out that Miami's done this in every game this year. Miami in every game, whether if they have the ball at the end of the game, they don't kneel. No one just has noticed because Miami's either winning by three scores and it doesn't matter, or against Texas A and M they were losing by or they were you know whatever it was right. So. 
It's very, uh, yeah, I don't know. Somebody joked there, like, well, you know, taking a knee is beta. Mario's an alpha. Like, I, I don't know, man. It's cr- like crazy, weird, crazy stuff. I don't, I don't know if it's just an inferiority complex or something. But just it, it cost, cost Miami, and, and it likely cost them a shot in the ACC championship this year. Because with how good that the ACC is with Louisville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and Florida State, like you, Miami's going to probably have one or two more losses this year. And that could really come back to haunt them. It comes to New Year's Six or ACC Championship game implications. All right, it's running for the roses. Lucas and I are going to get into our Week 5 recap. We're going to do it through the lens of some very highly paid individuals, some, some, some very highly paid college football coaches who have received contract extensions in recent years. How are those programs faring one, two, three years into those contracts? Excuse me. Um, we're going to start with Jimbo Fisher. We're going to start with Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M. The, uh, the Aggies lose 26-20 to 20 to, uh, to Alabama. Lucas, Jimbo Fisher gets paid $95 million. He, he signed a 10-year extension in September of 2021 following Texas A&M's Orange Bowl appearance in 2020. This is the tenure of Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. 9-4, 2018. 8-5, 2019. 9-1, 2020. Won the Orange Bowl. 8-4 in 21. 5-7 in 2022. Uh, Texas A&M loses to Alabama this week. And, and here are some of the conservative decisions that Jimbo Fisher made during that game. He punted on fourth and one from Alabama's 45 late in the third quarter in a tie game. He punted again on fourth and six in Alabama's territory while trailing early in the fourth quarter. Kicked a field goal on fourth down and goal from the Alabama two-yard line with a little more than two minutes left after using a timeout. Um, yeah, that was the biggest That was the biggest thing for me was yeah. the timeout. Like, when they clearly knew they were going to kick a field goal. But, yeah, continue. Well, the, I think the point being, and, and Jimbo is where we start because Jimbo has the most notable contract in the history of the sport, right? Jimbo has... The contract that got him to A and M before the 2018 season that really reset the market for for coaches. He had won a national championship at Florida State. He's only one of I think four current coaches to have won a national mm-hmm. championship. Right? It's it's Jimbo, Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Dabo Sweeney, and Mac Brown. So five. So there are five current coaches that have won a national championship. Um, I get the move for A and M at the time. It was a big name, and you thought you know if you gave him all what he needed. Facility-wise, resource-wise, assistance, all this stuff. He was going to take you to where you wanted to go. And so far, Lucas, it just hasn't happened. I mean, you look at the – these are the SEC records for Texas A&M under Jimbo Fisher. Five and three, four and four, eight and one in 2020. Four and four, two and six last year. They're two and one this year. I mean, the eight and nine wins looks good. But when you're playing, you know, UL Monroe – and Nickel State in the in the non-con. I mean, you look at the SEC record, 25 and 19 for a coach that makes almost $10 million a year. Mm-hmm. And I thought they had a really good chance to beat Alabama. It was a very competitive game. But this is also the worst Alabama in years. I mean, this is an Alabama team that looks like it's a 9-3 and three team. And with how poor the SEC is, they very well might get to 10 or 11 wins. But this was your shot for – a&M, right? Like, you felt like this was your shot. And I know that Connor Wigman got injured. 
Um, but you felt like you got Bama at home. Like, this could be your year to win the SEC West, and it doesn't look like that's going to be the case for Jimbo. No, and the fact was they were up 17-10 to 10 at halftime, and you're feeling fairly good. But then Alabama made some really, really nice halftime adjustments, I thought. They were in Max Johnson's face, I thought, the entire second half. And my thing with Jimbo, too, was it just felt like they were just trying to run the same offense they had in the first half that Alabama clearly had adjusted to. They had no second counterpunch or second, third, or fourth option to try to go to, and they only scored three points in the second half. And like you mentioned, punting when you're deep in Alabama's territory, like, when you're playing teams like this, man, you've got to at least take some risk, especially because I thought their defense was playing okay for most of the time, but they also allowed Jalen Monroe to get... Uh, to get going. I thought Jalen Monroe had his best game as yeah. a starting quarterback at the FBS level. They uh, forgot to cover Jermaine Burton numerous times. He dude almost had 200 yards receiving. Like you mentioned, this was your time to get Alabama and you still couldn't. And now I think there's still more questions about AM. Now they have a road game, you know, next week going against Tennessee. And like we mentioned, that the price tag, I think if you're an AM fan, you can probably live most years winning eight to nine games, but when you're paying a guy nine and a half million dollars a year, oh, and by the way, this whole extension is fully guaranteed, so they could fire him today and they'll still owe him 70 million dollars um, on the rest of this contract. 77, Lucas. It's the second 77. largest buyout in the FBS right now. 77 million five hundred sixty-two thousand five hundred dollars as of uh, December 1st, 2023, so as of a couple months. And I even can't even remember when they signed that deal. Was there was there a big opening or something that they were that fearful they were going to lose him to? I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't think so. It would have been coaches starting in 2021. That was not USC. Oh, yeah. It was not LSU. It was no. not um, not Alabama. I mean, again, when you're making $9 million or whatever it was at the time, there are only a several jobs you could take, like you could even take. But like that's the point in all these extensions, right? Like one little one program comes sniffing around your coach, or one your coach gets put on some list. Next thing you know, it's like, oh my god, we have to lock him up for eight more years. Oh my god, we'll talk about PJ Fleck here soon. That's, right. <laughs> that's called the, that's the PJ uh, Fleck rule right there. So, <laughs> one good year, you got to lock him up. But I mean, we saw this with Mel Tucker. Uh, Michigan right. State has that magical season. They're afraid every school like LSU that year was going to poach him away, and they gave him kind of a similar contract. But anyway, it it was a frustrating loss. I think the one thing with Texas A&M, you look at their season right now, you look at their two toughest games on the road at Miami and at home against Alabama, and they are 0-2 in both of those games. And like we said, you're paying Jimbo Fisher to at least win, I think, like half of these kind of toss-up games. And right now he's probably batting – less than 200 um, when it comes to maybe some of these toss-up games. Yeah, but. well, be, because real quick before we get to your your first game, like college football, like when you're an A&M, you're set up to go at least eight or nine wins every year, right? You're going to have more talent. The way Jimbo's recruited, you're going to have more talent than seven, eight teams every year. So it's how do you do in those four or five games when you're playing Alabama, you're playing LSU, you're playing Tennessee this week? Like how do you do when your talent is very evenly matched? And – 
with Jimbo's conservative, not even play calling, because he's not calling the plays anymore, but his conservative decision making. Like you just wonder, like when you're punting on fourth and three from the opponent's forty-two yard line every single time, like what good does having Evan Evan Stewart and Anaya Smith have, mm-hmm. or Ruben Owens, or like all of these really good playmakers that Texas A&M has? So I don't know what the future holds for Jimbo. Like I don't know. I think Brian Kelly will keep having success at LSU. Nick Saban is Nick Saban. Lane Kiffin seems to be a thorn in everyone's side. Ole Miss could be really good this year. They won again this week over Arkansas. Um, so I just – it seems like Texas A&M is paying a coach almost $100 million to just be a middle-of-the-road SEC West team, and that must be infuriating for the big-money people there. Well, no, I, I can't imagine it. We've already heard through Bruce Feldman uh, that apparently they are ready if they need to. To, uh, to pay that buyout, even though, just just think about this, that buyout is not much less than what, like, Oklahoma and Texas each had to pay to, like, lead, or what they were originally going to have to pay to lead the Big 12. Yeah. And you're talking about that for one coach. But, side note before we move on, we, we talked about how, you know, we talked about this a lot last week, how, you know, with Alabama and Georgia, some of these premier teams may be struggling a little bit. And now after this week, it, it, I mean, it's just the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, is Alabama now the, the clear-cut favorite to win the, the SEC West right now? I think so. I think LSU's defense is just too bad. I mean, LSU's yeah. defense cannot stop a nosebleed. That defense is horrendous, and I don't think they're going to get better. It's not like Mason Smith, you're going to get him back, or Harold Perkins has been injured, or whatever it is, like – they're very thin in the secondary. They lost a couple guys in training camp. Um, they're just getting torched. Missouri puts up 39. Um, you look at what, obviously, Ole Miss did to them two weeks ago. Like, I don't think LSU is a complete enough football team. Alabama is still undefeated in conference play. LSU has a loss. And Alabama gets LSU at home this year. The game's in mm-hmm. Tuscaloosa. So I don't know the rest of Bama's schedule. I know they'll still get Tennessee. Um, but you've already played A&M on the road. You've already played Ole Miss. You already, I mean, you have wins over Ole Miss and A&M. I think for Bama, you have to feel really good. The question will be, do they get there at 11-1 and one, or do they get there at 10-2? and two? If you get there at 11-1, you have a chance to win and compete for a national championship. If you get there at 10-2, absolutely no way you should be in, even if you beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. But they're going to be favored against any other team right. that they you play in the right. playoff, probably. Alabama would be favored against uh, <laughs> Illinois on a neutral. You're absolutely right. <laughs> God. You know what? That's a great point. Hang on. You know what? Let me write that down. Hang on. <laughs> All right. Go on. Give me the first game uh, First game you want to talk about here. All right. So uh, sticking with our, our match. So looking at other, play, other coaches that recently got extensions – this one, I think, is the opposite of Jimbo Fisher because I think this extension is very much deserved, though it might not have looked like it on Saturday night. But staying in the SEC but on the other side of the division, talk about Mark Stoops at Kentucky. So I believe it was in September this year. He got, I think it was around like a six-year extension. And he's going to be making close, by the end of this, close to $9 million annually, which you might think, oh, my gosh, it's Kentucky. But Mark Stoops, he's the winningest head coach. In Kentucky history, he's made them increasingly relevant. They've gone to seven straight bowl games um, under his watch, and we've seen him. He's now in his like eleventh season there. We've seen them compete. They've had a couple ten win seasons. 
before their game against Georgia this week, they were going in at 5-0, ranked. He's made them relevant at a, at a place that didn't really care about football. Uh, Kentucky fans, I've met a decent amount of them here, uh, here in Tennessee, and they're basically like, yeah, football, we just, want it, we just want something to talk about until Kentucky basketball, <laughs> something to keep us interested and invested in Kentucky athletics until basketball starts. And, um, you know, they've had a couple of years where they've been the second best team in the SEC East, have yet to get over that, that hump. But I do think um, this contract, I think this one will last much better than Jimbo Fisher were. One, because the expectations are down. But I also think Mark Stoops is a fantastic head coach. Because unlike Jimbo, Kentucky doesn't have necessarily the resources for football that Texas A&M has um, or a lot of other big-time programs. But he's been able to compete with a lot of uh, people in the SEC. However... Did not look like that this weekend. <laughs> Kentucky, um, big game, obviously, against Georgia. In Athens, you can argue that this was Georgia's toughest game that they had had to date. And really, for the first time, we had been waiting to see Georgia kind of erupt and show why they've been the two-time defending champs, and they did exactly that. Uh, this game was not close uh, from basically the opening kickoff um, all the way to the end. Georgia wins this game. Uh what was the final score? 55 to 14. 50, uh, 51-13. 51-13. Um, but, I mean, they completely shut down Kentucky's running game that rushed for over 300 yards the week before uh, against Florida. Ray Davis was largely ineffective. And I also thought for the um, – I think we're seeing these last couple of weeks, Carson Beck, man, I think has really turned some eyes. I thought he played really, really well against Auburn was a big reason why they escaped the Plains with a win there. If you look at him here against a pretty good Kentucky defense, 28 to 35, 389 yards, four touchdowns. Obviously it helps when you have uh, Brock power or Brock Bowers, who had another crazy game, seven catches for 132 yards. Um, and like I said, their, their defense was, was suffocating. Devin Leary was not very good at all. Last night was 10 to 26 for like a hundred, a buck 20. So, Going off of that, yes, I still think the Stoops, uh, the Stoops extension is really, really good. They're still 5-1. and one. They're going to be a for-sure bowl team. Still probably going to be competing for that second spot there in the SEC East. But last night, Georgia proving why I think they're still the best team in the SEC and still why they're one of the best teams in the entire country. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head. First of all, listen, kudos to Georgia. That's a team that has looked sluggish all year. They were 0 and. 5-0-4 against the spread. They hadn't covered in a game all season. And they go out, they make a statement, right? They see the first-ranked team. Um, like, they see the first numbers in front of the team. Like, they're playing a ranked team. It's on ESPN at night, prime time. And I think Kirby Smart knew this might be my best chance to get a ranked win all year. Like, this might be my best chance to just look really good. Uh, and let's pour it on a little bit. And certainly they did that. Uh, Ray Davis, if, if you can't get Ray Davis going, you're going to struggle against Georgia, and I think Georgia knows that. And Devin Leary, I, I don't know if Devin Leary has been – listen, he hasn't been as bad as Brennan Armstrong, but who got pinched, by the way. But clearly is, is – I don't know if he's the savior for Kentucky. But listen, Kentucky still looks like a team that the floor is the third or fourth best team in the, in the East, and they're probably still the second best team in the East right now. Um, but the, I think the point that you hit on is the expectations at Kentucky. Texas A&M is not content with Jimbo Fisher going 8-4, and 9-3 and three every year. Kentucky 100% is. 
Like a hundred percent. If they go eight and four every year and they go to the Outback Bowl or they go to the Capital One Bowl or whatever it is, like they are totally fine with that. Like you said, they're gonna have, you know, fun, fun atmospheres in September and October before basketball season. They're gonna produce a couple draft picks, like they're just gonna go about his business. Mark Stoops is the eighth highest paid coach according to USA Today's data. Mark Stoops' total compensation is just over nine million dollars. These are the coaches that Mark Stoops makes more money than. James Franklin, Jim Harbaugh, Mike Gundy, Mike Norvell, Dan Lanning, Kirk Ferentz, Kyle Whittingham, uh, Chip Kelly, <laughs> I mean, Steve Sarkeesian. Like, uh, it's not a bad gig. I mean, people have said in the college football community that Mark Stoops has the absolute best, um, mm-hmm. the absolute best gig in the sport. And it's, it's true. He's got little to no pressure. He's the winningest coach in school history. They might build him a statue if he stays there another five or six years. And you're sitting there being like, why would you leave? Like, Mark Stoops has been rumored for other jobs, whether I think it was Florida State back before they hired Mike Norvell, like, whatever it is. You know, why would – to me, like, that's a great gig. You know, mm-hmm. I, my, my family's not going to get harassed when we lose games. Like, I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to live comfortably. There's not a ton of pressure. Like, I, I love that. In Kentucky, I still think it looks like the second-best team in the SEC West, although Missouri looks pretty good as well. And we'll we'll get to Missouri here in a little bit as Eli Drinkowitz is on my list. But I don't want to go there next. I want to go to okay. a team that's, that is is the opposite. Um, and I want to go to one of the worst Power 5 teams in the country. And I want to go to a coach that you and I, I think, both have a lot of love for. And I want to go to Brett Bielema and the Illinois Final Line. Well, love, um, is, love, is a, love is a strong word for me on that one. Okay. But. I, I, I thought – I go with Chicago. Former Wisconsin coach. Obviously, Lucas still hasn't gotten over in 2013. It's, it's, it's been 10 years, Lucas. Move on. Here we go. Um, um, so, Brett Bielema in uh, December of 2022 signed a six-year extension that keeps him through the 2028 season. So, they essentially ripped up his prior contract. And they gave him a brand new contract. Brett Bielema, according to the USA Today table, is the 21st highest paid coach in the country. He is making more money than Kyle Whittingham. He's making more money than Pat Narduzzi, who has an ACC championship, who maybe we'll talk to soon. Making more money than Jeff Braun. Making more money than Mac Brown in North Carolina. And I watched a good amount of Nebraska and Illinois on Friday night. Oh, on F- God. On bless, your, bless your heart and, on and because I'm sitting there, and, and Kendra had plans, and it was just me, and I was just hanging out. And I said, let me, let me fire up. I said, in July, I'm going to wish I could watch Illinois and Nebraska on Friday night. And it might have been the worst Power 5 on Power 5 game I've, I've seen this year. <laughs> I mean, just in absolute abysmal football. Illinois couldn't move the ball offensively. Nebraska, I think, had six – Red zone possessions and scored on two of them. Like, score points on two of them. Uh, Illinois had a punt blocked. It was just disa- – like, Nebraska kept wanting to give Illinois a chance to win the game. And mm-hmm. Illinois said, no, like, we're good. We don't want to win this game. And so, Brett Bielema makes over $6 million. Illinois is 2-4. They are 0-4 against Power 5 teams this year. Their only wins – Illinois' season so far is a two-point win over Toledo – in which they had to complete like a fourth and 15 pass to win the game, to like put themselves in a position to win the game. They got throttled against Kansas. Then they get throttled against Penn State. Then they beat FAU by six points and back to back losses to Purdue and Nebraska, 
two first-year head coaches and two games that Illinois – like, Illinois should be better in year three under Brett Bielema mm-hmm. than year one Nebraska, year one Purdue. And the offense looks terrible. The defense has been very inconsistent. And you're paying a guy a lot of money to basically have the worst team in the Big Ten West. So this is a, this is a kind of another example, Lucas, of you know Illinois went eight and four last year, eight and five with the bowl loss, and you have one good season. Like a coach has one good season early on in, in his tenure, gets an extension, and then we're sitting there being like, man, what is the buyout for Brett Bielema? And you go and you look at the buyout for Brett Bielema, and it's thirty five million dollars. <laughs> And you're like, oh, (laughs) you're like, oh, uh, goodness, maybe, uh, goodness. So it's, listen, I, I, we were both decently high high on Illinois. Obviously what they did last season was incredibly impressive. And Illinois isn't a program that can just lose four or five guys to the NFL like they did, right? Devon Witherspoon, Sidney Brown, guys like that. Um, But for a team that maybe was a dark horse, like Big Ten West championship contender to a team that will be lucky to make a bowl game. Uh, and a team that just locked in their head coach for six more years, the Illinois final line. Oh, man, good research. I had no idea that uh, the buyout was $35 million. Yeah. That is uh, – maybe maybe they were afraid he was going to leave, you know, like he did for Wisconsin for like a lower-tiered SEC job again. Like well, so take, like, the interesting State. thing that right. I um, – God, this came out, I think, earlier in September. Actually, no, he um, it was a quote from Bielema at Media Days. He has a non-compete in the Big Ten. Like, he hmm. cannot leave. In his contract, he cannot leave for another Big Ten job. And people were speculating, like, if when Kirk Ferentz leaves, Brett Bielema played at Iowa. He has an Iowa tattoo. Yep. Don't ask me how I know about Brett Bielema's tattoos. I will, might not like to say that on the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, he, like, people might speculate, oh, maybe he'll take the Iowa job if it's better. So, he, not only that, he has a non-compete in the Big Ten. He can't even go to Rutgers, man. <laughs> Hey, don't feel weird about the tattoo. I know it's on one of his calves. I, I do know that. Okay, so look at that. Uh, I actually know it, buddy. buddy. <laughs> come to running, stay. Come to running for the roses for the D three Wisconsin football talk. Stay for the Brett Bielema tattoo talk. <laughs> Tattoos. <laughs> but uh, no, it. I'm in an agreement with you. My, I guess the thing uh, that I, another one thing, I, like you said, it is year three. Like I know that they lost. Like, they lost really good players last year. Like, you lose a top-five pick in Devin Witherspoon. You lose three or four key, key contributors. Even a guy that didn't get drafted, Tommy DeVito, I thought was uh, incredibly underappreciated. I mean, you look at it this year with, with Luke Altmaier, you know, he's a turnover machine. You know, I think having a guy like Tommy DeVito, who was a veteran, had played a lot of football, really brought a sense of, of calmness and stability back there, and they just don't have that. The offensive line also has issues. But you would think by year three, with a few recruiting classes, maybe bringing some guys to the portal, that they would at least be able to, to hold off such a deep dive. And like you said, they have not had a win against a Power 5 opponent. You were talking about they might be the worst team in the Big Ten West. Well, hey, we're going to find out. They played Northwestern the last week of the, se- or the, last week of the season. Uh, though Minnesota might be able to, to have a say in that as well. Uh, we might, I might bring them up here in a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it, it was brutal. I caught the highlights of that game and just was, yikes. And I don't see a path for them for a bowl game this year. Now, look, no. they're not going to fire him. Illinois, kind of like Kentucky, they're going to be happy if they're consistently around bowl eligibility each year. 
their fans are going to appreciate that. What they don't want is kind of years like this where they're winning only two, three, four games. But, you know, you get seven. You can If you can get a floor where it's six, seven, eight wins a year, they're going to take that. And I think Brett can still get them there. But this is a really, really rough look, especially especially the way after last year ended. I mean, this is a team that started 7-1, finished 8-4, and four, missed out in the Big Ten title game. They lost in their bowl game, lost four of their last five. So, yeah, the, the, the vibes aren't great there. But I do think that that deal does have a little bit more time to, to work itself out, hopefully. But watch, they'll probably give them another extension uh, this coming year because that's how these things freaking work. Yeah, next next two games for uh, Illinois, they they get Maryland this week, and then at or, uh, and then they get Wisconsin in Champaign yeah. in the bye week. So probably looking at two and six, <laughs> and then you got to go four and zero to end it. I think the last four games are manageable for Illinois, but uphill battle for year three for a bowl game for Brett Bielema. All right, where do you want to go next? Yeah, yeah. Well, since I kind of already hinted at it, I might as well stay uh, in the Big Ten West. And I know, I believe you had some notes on this man. Yep. As well. Uh, we made a joke. They could be potentially. that I didn't think this would be the case coming into the year, but just the way that they have started Big Ten play. Uh, and I'm talking about P.J. Flack. So P.J. Flack, to be fair, has been, prior to this season, been really, really good at Minnesota. You talk about three out of the last four years prior to this one. They won nine-plus games. 2019, they had that kind of magical year where they went 11-2, and two, went Won their first New Year's Day Bowl since, like, the 1940s, um, like, pre-World War II. And they rewarded P.J. Flack uh, in December of last year. Uh, seven years, uh, seven-year extension worth up to $42 million or $7 million. Or six, uh, yeah, I think about a little over $6 million per year. Um, and, look, he's also another thing, too. He's beaten Wisconsin three out of the last five years prior to him coming with Minnesota had lost Wisconsin 14 years in a row. Um, he's kind of re-stabilized that rivalry. But this season has not gone great. Um, I think there was some optimism heading in for Minnesota, especially with Ethan Kelly McManus, the Greek rifle that, you know, you know, he finally started last year. He was a four-star guy out of Illinois that, hey, this could be – he could be what Tanner Morgan was in 2019. They brought in, you know, have Daniel Jackson. Corey Crooms was a big transfer get that they got at wide receiver. And it has just been bad, man. I mean, they're 3-3. Three and three. Uh, Every team that they've kind of played this year with Pulse, uh, North Carolina, they got crushed. Uh, you look at this past weekend, we'll get into this, but um, it is really, really tough. And I actually looked up the stat. And it kind of surprises me. Uh, I know Minnesota likes to run the football, but man, oh man, this just seems like this is completely on purpose, that they're just trying to outrun everybody. Their last three games, they have ran it 71% of the time. 71% of their plays have been run plays. Yeah. The only three teams higher in that stretch are service academies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um with, I believe, Air Force being number one who runs it about 78% of the time. And, like, even this past week in their game against Michigan, they lost by 42 points. You would think they would throw it more just because they were out of this game right away. They only threw the ball 16 times, including one of them was, I think, like a halfback or a wide receiver pass. So their quarterback, Ethan Kelly McManus, was 5 of 15 for like 50 yards in the game. And this is coming from PJ Flack, who 
going all the way back to Western Michigan, has been able to develop wide receivers. He was a wide receiver coach before becoming a head coach. You know, Corey Davis was a top five pick that he developed at Western Michigan. Rashad um, Bateman. Rashad Bateman. Tyler Johnson were both NFL draft picks. And it's not like he was – like, these guys were middling three-star guys that they were able to identify and develop. You know, you know, Chris Upman-Bell has had his moments, things like this. They have guys there, and I just don't understand the offensive philosophy. And now their defense has regressed this season, too. And the offense hasn't gotten any better. And, look, I don't think they're going to fire him by any means. And I think he's done – he's – He's worth the benefit of the doubt to trust that he can kind of turn this around. But with with everything coming into play with the new team, the new the West Coast teams coming into the Big Ten, get them getting rid of divisions, I, I, you can't win like this. I think Iowa's figuring that out right now. I think Wisconsin tr- is trying to get away from just running like the three yards in the cloud of dust thing. You cannot win in modern college a football at a high level anymore. And I think they found that out this week against Michigan, who was kind of that way years ago before Harbaugh somewhat adjusted and kind of modernized their offense too. Well, and that's a really good point, right, is you just kind of look at the traditional Big Ten model has been recruit big and beefy offensive. I mean, it's the Wisconsin model, right? You're not going to get the skill talent that some of the other programs will get, but if you can be physical and run the ball and all this, I mean, you look at the numbers, like um, Minnesota – is averaging 132 yards per game this year on the uh, through the air. They're averaging 180 on the ground. Uh, they have eight rushing touchdowns this year and six passing touchdowns this year. I mean, they just you know, eighth in Callum McManus. I, I, the, there were people I think around college football that did have a lot of did have a lot of uh, high expectation for him. It just hasn't really come out. I mean, they have a really good true freshman running back, Darius Taylor. P.J. Flex already come out and had some kind of odd comments about that. He's like, well, if we don't improve our NIL game, we're going to lose Darius Taylor. And and that's never a good sign. But then you also look at P.J. Fleck. I mean, 9-4 in 2022, 9-4 in 2021, 2019, 11-2. Like, I mean, that's pretty damn good for Minnesota. And I know that mm-hmm. Minnesota fans don't want to hear that. And we're, we're friends with one very, very uh, boisterous Minnesota fan who feels a certain way about P.J. Fleck. But – you know, um, Gary Parrish hosts the Ion College Basketball Podcast, and he, he said something that I that I kind of taken to heart. He goes, your first three or four years as a head coach, you are your results are compared against your predecessors. So if your predecessor was five or six wins with Jerry Kill and you're winning seven, eight, nine, great. Like, you've exceeded that. After that, after your, your, like, your next three or four seasons, you're compared with your previous. Like, you're mm-hmm. not compared with ten years ago what your results were. So Minnesota, like, if, if I were to tell a Minnesota fan, like, P.J. Flex 47 and 30. Now, he's 27 and 28 in the Big Ten, right? So, again, it's a lot of 3-0 non-conferences. I understand that, right? They haven't won the Big Ten West. And they're probably not going to this year. And then you have Oregon and Washington and USC entering next year. Um, the buyout for P.J. Flex, $27 million dollars. Um, 27 point, I'm sorry, 23.7 million dollars. Um, so I don't know what they do. I mean, they are three and three. They still have to play Iowa, still have to play Ohio State. Um, I mean, I think six wins is, is realistic for them. You know, you still do get Purdue and Illinois, but this team lost to Northwestern. 
Western. Yeah. yeah. We were up 20, what, 34 to 10 or something in that game? Like, 31, 31 to 10 like, in the fourth quarter. I mean, like, that's a t- I mean, because you're right. Any team they play with the Pulse, they beat Eastern Michigan. They beat Nebraska week one, but they, they played awful in that game. They scored 13 points mm-hmm. against Nebraska. Um, so I don't really know how, how I feel about Fleck. I don't know if I have very strong opinions on P.J. Fleck. Um, I, I think he has elevated that program to a T, but at some point it just gets stale. At some point people get tired of the same thing. Like it's really hard to be a Mike Gundy, a Kyle Whittingham, like whatever it is. Like it's hard to stay at the same place for like 15 years. It just is. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I agree, and especially especially this style that they play. Like uh, when when it is working, you can tolerate it, you can live with it. You're like, well, this is what we got to do to win. But when it's not working, it it is really really hard to watch. And then it's also hard when you're getting beat fifty two to ten. And but I just want to make a slight note on Michigan. They scored fifty two points on fifty six plays. That is uh, that is incredibly tough to do. And uh, I guess kudos to them for being remarkably efficient and almost. Almost averaging a one point for every play that they ran last right. night against Minnesota. Right. All right, I'm going to talk about uh, Eli Drinkwitz from the Missouri Tigers. Fun fact about Eli Drinkwitz, Lucas. He, uh, in November of 2023, I'm sorry, November of 2022, he signed a three-year contract extension through the 2027 season. At that point, Missouri was 4-5 and five on the season. And Eli Drinkwitz was 15-17 and 17 in his tenure when he signed an extension. Um, Eli Drinkowitz, let's see if I can find him here on my chart if my computer will load. Um, I will uh, I will look for him. Let's see where he is. Well, I'll find him later. Um, now, Missouri has, I think, had a pretty good year. They're, they just suffered their first loss of the season to LSU. Brady Cook looks really good. Luther Burden, love how they're using him. Um, they lost to a better LSU team. Like, that's a lot where... You know, you were a five-and-a-half, six-point underdog. You lost by 10. Bad beat for Missouri, plus five-and-a-half betters. That saw uh, LSU pick six with, like, a minute left, basically. Lose that bet. But um, I, I think Eli Drinkowicz has been pretty good for Missouri. Um, but he was on the hot seat heading in, heading into this year. Now, they, they've got some good recruiting wins. Luther Bird was a top-five overall player in the country. They have another top, I think, 10-player, five-star mm-hmm. signed in this current recruiting class. Um, and Missouri looks like a team that is with Tennessee and Kentucky kind of battling for that second place, that runner-up to Georgia. This team, I think, almost beat Georgia, what, in 2022, 2021? Last year. Last year they should have beat them. Yeah. Yeah, like last year they, they hosted Georgia, took them right down to the wire, was the closest game Georgia played in up until the Ohio State game. So, um Eli Drinkwitz, I think, has done some good things for that Minnesota for that uh, um, Missouri program. They made a bowl last year, um, and looks like they're somewhat on the right track. But I, it's just crazy to me that he got a contract extension when he was four and five on the season. Mm-hmm. That's crazy to me. Hey, maybe it was the the administration trying to get that ripple effect. Like, hey, we're we're all the way bought in. We know this year isn't going the way, but you're our guy. Maybe it helps with recruiting and everything like that. Like you said, they've had some wins on the recruiting trail. They actually are battling a couple people for another couple five stars in Missouri that they could eventually get to. But you know, Missouri, I think it's just a tough, it's just a tough job, especially with the move to the SEC. I mean, yeah. they're probably the furthest from you know the fertile recruiting grounds in in, in Texas, Georgia, Florida. And then if you just go job-wise, 
I mean, you'd probably put that as what the fourth or fifth best job, maybe in that division. So it's not the easiest place. Most of those games you play in the SC, you're probably going to be the underdog in. But like we said, I think things have started to click this year. Brady Cook looks much, much improved and better. That offense is actually very, very good, which was Eli Drinkowitz's calling card at NC State and at, and at Boise State prior to, to coming to Mizzou. So I do think it, it has been working out. Look, they still have half the season left, um, but 5-1, and one, I don't think any of us had them at 5-1, and one, especially beating Kansas State the way they did. That was a top 15 win. Um, so I think there's a lot of momentum. Yes, this game, I think, hurt a little bit. I think if they would have beaten LSU this past weekend, uh, that would have probably took the cake over the, the Kansas State uh, win. But I think ultimately things are, are moving on the up and up for Mizzou. And I think for the first time in probably a few years, that fan base is genuinely excited where the, where the progression of this program is going. All right, I got maybe two more I'd like to talk about quickly. Do you have any more that you would like to go through before we get to week, uh, what, seven at this point? I got one more. Okay, go ahead. Um, I was just going to um, go over – oh, just uh, just Lance Leipold real quickly. Um, so Lance, in his third year now at Kansas, last year, after taking Kansas to their first bowl game since 2008, signed um, – an extension that I think pays pays them close to $5 million per year. They also made some promises that they would renovate the, the whole football facility, uh, including parts of the stadium, things like that, to really commit towards football. Because uh, Lance's name was coming up uh, for just about every big-time job, and his this year as well. But I think this one, yes, I don't think it was premature at all. This was a program that was in complete shambles. They went 2-10 in his first year. Like we said, hadn't been to a bowl game in almost two decades. And then basically, just in year two, takes them to a bowl game. They start off 5-0. and And then even this year, um, they've kind of built on that, even with injuries to their best player, Jalen Daniels. This week, they go out, they go on the road uh, at UCF. Uh, Jalen Daniels doesn't play. It doesn't matter. They rush for about 400 yards um, against UCF. They win it 51-22. to and they're five and two, and they're probably easily going to make a bowl game, which is crazy, in my opinion, to say that in year three. You can make an argument they might be the third or fourth best team in the Big 12 this year, too, um, with maybe a dark horse chance if something happens to Oklahoma or Texas um, in making the Big 12. So um, that to me um, was one that jumped out that has actually, I think, is going to work out. Then again, this probably won't be his first extension. Who knows if he's actually coaching at Kansas because I'm sure his name is going to come up for a lot of jobs once again in this coaching carousel. Yeah, I've already seen him rumored on some lists for the Michigan State job. We'll see what other big names come up. Um, I mean, you know my thoughts on Lance Leipold. I think he's one of the best coaches in the country. Kansas, the offense they run is is awesome. It's fun. It's innovative. The team plays hard. Everywhere he goes, he wins. Mm-hmm. I mean, everywhere he goes, wins follow, whether it's in, in the in the Division Three, whether it's in the MAC, whether it's in the Big 12. And like you said, you look at the Big 12 standings right now, Oklahoma's at top, they're 3-0. and Texas, I think we all can agree, is the first or second best team in the Big 12. After that, I mean, Tex- uh, West Virginia's 2-0 and in the conference. Then you have Texas Tech, Iowa State, and Kansas State all at 2-1. and I think Kansas – I'm sorry, Kansas at 2-1. and I-, I think Kansas is the second best team um, – 
I'm sorry, third best team in the Big 12. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's Kansas State. They lose in Stillwater on Friday. Like, I think it's Kansas right now, and I don't know off the top of my head if they if they get Oklahoma, but yeah, they already played. They already played Oklahoma. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Oh no, they played Texas. They played Texas. They, so yeah. they don't play they Oklahoma play this year, though. Okay. Um, yeah, no, but super. But and I, and I think the biggest question will be: Does Lance? How long will Lance Leipold stay there? Is that a destination job for him? Does he like the small town? Not a lot of. Not a lot of uh, pressure and publicity. Like he might like that. He's a guy that coached the D three level for a long time before he took the Buffalo job. All right, I'm going to go through two real quickly. I'm going to start with Pat Narduzzi, who was extended in the spring of 2022 after winning the ACC in 2021. Uh, the Pitt Panthers are one in four, and and quite possibly the worst, along with Virginia, team in the ACC. They have lost four straight. Since a season-opening win against Wofford, they are 0-4 against FBS teams. They lost to Cincinnati, West Virginia, North Carolina, and Virginia Tech. Panthers were off this past week. Remaining schedule, Lucas, is brutal. Louisville uh, this upcoming Saturday at Wake Forest, at Notre Dame, Holmes, Florida State, home Syracuse, Boston College, and Duke. Um, like Illinois, I think uh, face an upward path to a bowl game. Uh, and I don't know what you with Pat Narduzzi. I mean, he's had a lot of success there. That's another guy that's been rumored for the Michigan State job. I think if Pitt had a better season, that those rumors would you would hear a little bit more of them. Um, guy that has an ACC championship, mm-hmm. right? He's got something that not a lot. It's got something that Miami doesn't have. Got something that Florida State doesn't have in a while. Like he has an ACC championship. So um, I, I think Pitt kind of rides that out. He's signed through twenty thirty. He's making, uh, where is he at? He's 28th in the country. He's making just about $5.8 million. Um, let's see if I have the buyout number here. Nope, we do not have the buyout number on the USA Today table. But um, And then the other guy I wanted to talk to was Clark Lee at Vanderbilt. Signed a three-year extension through the 2029 season just before this season. Lucas, Vanderbilt had some good vibes. They went 5-7 and seven last year. They beat Florida. You were thinking to yourself, you know, this is a program in the right direction. They got AJ Swan, Clark Lee, new stadium, and it has been it has been a disaster for Vanderbilt. They're two and five. Um, they have surrendered two hundred and thirty eight points through seven games. That is by far the most. Vanderbilt's the only team in the SEC to surrender over two hundred uh, over two hundred points so far. Um, not not uh, not going so well for Clark Lee in year three. Um, they have lost five straight since starting the year with wins over Hawaii and Alabama A&M. They've lost to UNLV, Wake Forest, Kentucky, Missouri, and Florida. And four of those five games were by double digits. So Clark Lee and Pat Narduzzi, if you want to have a couple thoughts on them, on them and then we'll uh, transition to uh, the upcoming week. Uh, yeah, Narduzzi, once again... They won the ACC, the ACC title two years ago. Last year, I thought they had a really nice season, winning 9-4. My only worry with Narduzzi was they have their best year ever in 2021. You have a, a Heisman candidate in, uh, in Kenny Pickett. Um, you're, you had a Blitnikoff winner in Jordan Addison, like a really fun offense. And your first inclination was... Yeah, you end up getting rid of Mark Whipple, your offensive coordinator, and it basically comes out that you didn't like that type of offense, even though it was winning you games. And when you an ACC title, you wanted to still run the ball more. And to me, that was 
kind of a worry sign. I think we're seeing that hit its ugly head. The offense this year is bad. Phil Dracovic, who they thought they could resurrect from Boston College, it's not like going to be playing not just not just playing quarterback, uh, starting quarterback for them anymore. He's not even playing quarterback in general. He's rumored to be uh, transitioning to a tight end for the rest of the year, um, which tells you all you need to know about how that how that went. So they could potentially mark this down as just a bad year. Um, you know, you did lose, um, you know, uh, Israel, uh, their big running back from last year too. Um, which yep. was a big Disney. loss. Yep. Um, but uh, And then with Clark Lee, I think this is more just a bump in the road. It probably wasn't looking great when they gave up 40 points and lost on the road to UNLV. Um, UNLV does look better this year, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it's just the whole thing. Their whole Half their stadium's demolished right now. Hopefully next year they can come back when their stadium's finished. And the, the rebuild hopefully will be over by then. But uh, like we mentioned with, like in the Big Ten, like with those new teams coming in, with Texas and Oklahoma coming in, it's only going to get tougher for Vanderbilt. Um, and that job is already tough enough as is. I was just going to say, before we move on to week seven, was there any games you wanted to touch on? Just games specifically? Yeah, we should touch on Red River here. Um, uh, a really, really fun one there in Dallas. Um, Oklahoma wins 34-30. Just so impressed with Dylan Gabriel. So impressed with Oklahoma. Um, you had picked, or I had picked Texas minus six and a half for my pick of the week, and I thought Texas was was pretty going to be pretty clear head and shoulders above Oklahoma. And listen, I, I thought Quinn Ewers made some questionable decisions, especially early on, and there was some flukiness to that first half. But I mean, credit to Oklahoma for just staying with it, coming back. Uh, Dylan Gabriel's a baller, man absolute ball it reminds me a little bit of baker mayfield with his kind of size and his moxie a little bit uh the red river is is we were texting about this with blaine like just a great atmosphere mm-hmm. i mean uh on youtube tv when i watched in multi-view you could only watch in multi-view with the pat mcafee uh um it's like side-by-side broadcast so I, I actually watched that most of most of the game and it's just crazy the celebrities. I mean, Trey Young, Matthew McConaughey, um, God, the really good-looking guy from Top Gun, Glenn Powell was there. Like, I mean, just an insane amount of, of like Greg Sankey they had on. I mean, just the the atmosphere was awesome. The game was awesome, and really a breath of fresh air after last year's drubbing yeah. that Texas gave Oklahoma. Uh, surprising result. I mean, I, I I don't downgrade Texas too much. I just think this was a fun competitive game that Texas just made one or two fewer plays. Yeah, I agreed. I think that was my biggest takeaway. It was Oklahoma looked like they belonged on the same field with Texas, unlike last year, where Texas uh, looked a mile uh, a mile above them, pretty much. But uh, I think it's it's a big credit to Brent Venables. I mean, we kind of had our questions after last year. They go to six and seven. It was like Oklahoma's first non-winning season, and uh, I don't know. It was in decades. I know that. I can't remember how far back, but. They've already matched their win total from last year, and you already beaten your top rival. Um, and like you said, kudos to Dylan Gabriel. I think there were some people that were arguing for, for Jackson Arnold to potentially take over yeah. that job, um, who was a five-star recruit coming in um, as a true freshman this year. I uh, was regarded as one of the best uh, quarterback recruits in the class of 2023. But, um, yeah, you saw why – uh, Dylan Gabriel, uh, why Oklahoma wanted him really bad last year and why he continues to be the starter. Just could not count him out that entire game. And yeah, I think it's something to build on. And I'm honestly, uh, not to jinx anything, but I'm pretty excited to watch this game again um, in December, more than likely. 
would be very surprised if these two teams are not facing most likely for a shot in the, the college football mm-hmm. playoff in December mm-hmm. for sure. All right, you ready to get to uh, the next uh, next slate of games? Yeah. All right, let's get to week seven. Um, we'll start on Thursday night, West Virginia and Houston, uh, 7 o'clock Eastern on FS1. The Mountaineers are 2-0 and in the Big 12. They are one of two undefeated teams remaining in the Big 12 Conference. How about that for Neil Brown's crew? Uh, moving to Friday night, Stanford at Colorado, 10 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. Also got Fresno State at Utah State. Fresno State Bulldogs suffered their first loss of the season against Wyoming um, this, this past week. That's 8 o'clock Eastern on CBS Sports Network. Turning our attention to Saturday, Georgia at Vanderbilt at, in the noon window. We have Georgia at Vanderbilt on CBS, Indiana at Michigan on Fox, Ohio State at Purdue on Peacock, Syracuse at Florida State on ABC, Arkansas at Alabama on ESPN, Iowa State at Cincinnati on FS1. Moving to the 3.30 window, game of the day, it's where college game day will be. Oregon at Washington on ABC. Texas A&M at Tennessee on CBS. Kansas at Oklahoma State on FS1. Illinois at Maryland on NBC. Florida at South Carolina on the SEC Network. Wake Forest at Virginia Tech on ACC Network. BYU at TCU on ESPN. Moving, uh, I'm sorry, one more. Iowa at Wisconsin. That's 4 o'clock Eastern on Fox. Moving to the primetime window, Auburn at LSU, 7 o'clock Eastern on uh, ESPN. Kansas State at Texas Tech on FS1. Uh, USC at Notre Dame, 7.30 Eastern on Peacock and NBC. And Miami at North Carolina, 7.30 Eastern on ABC. Missouri at Kentucky on the SEC Network in the late night window. Um, Only two late night games, no Pac-12 games late night window ucla is at oregon state that's an 8 p.m eastern kickoff on fox boise state at colorado state at uh on fs1 9 45 p.m eastern and to round out the night san diego state at hawaii on sports network lucas a couple games really stand out for me obviously it's oregon and washington in seattle um 3 30 p.m eastern on abc i also look at USC and Notre Dame, that's always a fun one. Uh, UCLA and Oregon State. Let's talk about Oregon and Washington. Both teams coming up buys. These two teams, I think, have looked like the two best teams in the Pac-12 all season. USC has kind of been a little inconsistent, especially on defense. The Trojans needed three overtimes to beat Arizona at home this past weekend. Um, when you look at this game, kind of what stands out to you and, and what are you most looking forward to about Oregon and Washington? Well, I think it's the battle of the, the two quarterbacks with, uh, with Bo Nix and Michael Penix. I think whoever stands out in this game potentially has a chance to get some Heisman pub. Uh, and obviously, whoever wins this sets himself up for a great chance at the Pac-12 championship. Because like you mentioned, I think these are probably the two best teams. If I were to rank 1 through 12 right now, I would probably put Washington and then Oregon just slightly below. But yeah, I think it's the battle of these two quarterbacks. This has been the conference of quarterbacks this year in the country. And I'm excited to finally see two of these kind of duke it off. Now watch, the final score is going to be like 21 to 17 or something. It'll be like <laughs> raining. It'll be raining in Seattle. And yeah. It'll just be... Uh, but no, I, I'm looking forward to that matchup and seeing if these defenses we've seen, 
you know, especially Washington, uh, their defense I don't think has gotten enough flack just because their offense has scored 60 points and they've still been able to win by 20 or 30 points. But yeah, they they have let some points up. Remember the last time they played, you were just talking about USC having trouble with, with Arizona. Arizona took Washington to the wire in Tucson uh, down there too. So uh, intrigued to see how they, they do. And this is also, I, I think, really the first test, real, real test, I think, um, for Oregon as well. Um, we see them drubbed pretty much everyone but Texas Tech, which was a tough kind of gritty win for them on the road. But um, another big test for those two. But, yeah, it's the battle of quarterbacks, I think, for me, uh, which typically that's how it always is when I'm looking for matchups. Yeah, and, you know, when when, when you have, you know, I'm trying to think back at this season. I mean, this is probably the best quarterback game this season, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Caleb Williams versus somebody will be involved probably down the line. Um, but typically in these games, like whatever defense shows up the best usually usually wins, right? The focus is always on the offense, and we know who the playmakers are for Washington. We know who the playmakers are for Oregon, but it, to me it's like what defense is going to show up, and I think the Oregon defense has just been a little bit more consistent, mm-hmm. right? I would, I would argue that Washington has faced a little bit maybe tougher competition, um, playing at Arizona, and Arizona is a team that is really feisty, right? They they put forty one on USC. Washington held them to I think seventeen, seventeen or twenty four. Um, Washington went at Michigan State. They stomped the Spartans. Like I just think Washington. I, I have a little bit. I have a little bit more questions on defense, but this game is going to be awesome. And and you're right, and it gives the. The winner of this game really has an inside track, mm-hmm. right? Really has because you'll have a tiebreaker win over the other team if you both finish with one or two losses. Like, it really gives you an inside track to the Pac-12 championship game, which really this season means you could have an inside track at the uh, at the college football playoff. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk real quick. USC, Notre Dame, both teams struggled last week. USC needs three overtimes to beat Arizona. That's a team that – I mean, defensively, they just continue to struggle, right? Gave up 41 to Colorado. Colorado only put up 27 on Arizona State. We've seen the Buffalo struggle to score recently against everyone not named USC. Um, the Trojans are undefeated. It's a really fun quarterback matchup. It's Caleb Williams versus Sam Hartman. The Fighting Irish suffered their second defeat. Um, I was very high on Notre Dame. I still am. just think sometimes – you know, it's hard to get up for these games week after week. I mean, the schedule for Notre Dame has been daunting, right? You had, you know, a couple of weeks ago you lose to Ohio State in a, in a heartbreaker. Then you beat Duke on the road. Then you go back on the road to play a ranked Louisville team. And now you got to play USC. Irish are a slight favorite. Um, what What's catching your eye in this game? Yeah, I think it's what is Notre Dame's kind of mindset coming into this game? because I think just the wave of emotions that they've had, you look at, you were talking about kind of those last three games. They lose on a heartbreaker on the last play of the game to Ohio State. Then they go back and they win in the final minutes against Duke. And then you're going into a game against Louisville where I don't think they were necessarily looking ahead because they knew they had USC, arguably their biggest game of the year, the next week. But... You know, I just, like you said, I think it's hard to kind of manage those emotions back-to-back. And, and look, Louisville completely outplayed Notre Dame. I mean, kind of beat them at their at their best game, completely shut down Audrey Kostemi in that run game. They had, I think they were averaging less than two yards a carry. 
um, against that Louisville front. Louisville made life hell for Sam Hartman. Um, Joe Alt, who was, you know, their starting left tackle, he was getting pan, he got pancaked on a couple of drives, and it led to Sam Hartman throwing three interceptions. My biggest thing is, can they rebound? And can this Notre Dame offense can, like do something? You look at these last three games. They scored 17 points against Ohio State, only 21 against Duke, only 20 against Louisville, and one of those was in, one of those touchdowns was in garbage time. That was a huge question mark for Notre Dame coming in, especially with the way that that offensive coordinator fiasco kind of went in. But then you brought in a guy like Sam Hartman to kind of help with those woes. He was supposed to help you get over the next step. And can they regroup and can they rebound and can they contribute offensively against, like we said. A, a USC defense that has struggled, to put it mildly, um, against just about everybody that they've come across with. I mean, they probably should have lost that game this week against Arizona. They had to come back from down 17-0 in the first quarter. Um, and that's and that's my question for USC, because um, we know the way Notre Dame wants to play. Are you going to be able to match that physicality on the defensive side of the ball uh, and hang with them for four quarters playing that way? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, this is kind of um, we we have mentioned on prior pods. You know, this is the start for USC, right? These last six games, seven games, basically. This is the start now for USC. You're going to get Utah. You're going to get UCLA. You're going to get Oregon. It starts with Notre Dame, and this is a USC team that I picked to win the national championship. They have not looked the part through the first uh, six games of the season for them, and. This is a chance for them to send a statement. It, it will probably still be the highest-rated game of the day because it's two huge mm-hmm. brands. It's a huge, two big names at, at quarterback. And we'll see. Sam Hartman's got to do a better job of, of taking care of the football, right? He turned the ball over uh, too many times. Uh, the last two times he's played Louisville, both with Wake Forest and with, um, with Notre Dame. All right, before we, we go to our picks here, I do want to get your thoughts on a game that is is underrated, I think, on the on the weekend, but not underrated for you, and it's Iowa at Wisconsin. Um, realistically, these are the only two teams that can win the Big yeah. Ten West. These teams are a combined nine and two. Wisconsin's two and zero oh in the Big Ten. Iowa's two and one. The the Big Ten West behind them has four teams at one and two, including Northwestern and Purdue, and Illinois at zero oh and three. So realistically, one of these two teams will win the Big mm-hmm. Ten West and play Michigan, Penn State. Or Ohio State. How are you feeling about the Badgers uh, in this one? I believe they're about a nine and a half point mm-hmm. favorite. It's crazy to me. Over under is thirty seven and a half. I mean, this will probably. It, I feel good. I think Wisconsin's the better team, just because. Look, I was. I think I said this in the last pod. I was starting quarterback Deacon Hill was Wisconsin's fourth stringer last year. Um, like with Wisconsin, we know how bad Wisconsin's quarterback room was a year ago, and the fact that this dude was the fourth string and is now starting for Iowa, I think, tells you all you kind of need to know. But then again, this is Iowa. Last year, I felt really good. Wisconsin held Iowa to 160 yards last year and lost by two touchdowns because special teams and a pick six were kind of like the the biggest difference in that football game. I think it's going to be the same way. I think it's whoever limits the amount of turnovers, I think – if Wisconsin can kind of fix their offense has been kind of maddening to this point. They just, they have flashes where it looks like the offense is finally starting to click and then they'll have like two to three straight three and outs where it doesn't look like anything is working for them at all. Um, 
and a little bit worried about Braylon Allen. He seems he's had a solid year, but just see, especially with him now being really the only bell cow back that they have with Ches Malusi, um, you know, out for the rest of the year. It's really going to be on him, and these are the games that can be really tough because you know it's going to be a lineup kind of physical type of game. Ultimately, I think Wisconsin is the better team, but Wisconsin hasn't. They haven't had that game yet where I'm like, okay, things are starting to click for them emotionally. And it's against Iowa. Iowa does not beat themselves. They're probably, they might only score 14 points on offense, but they're not going to give you any points of your own uh, to really work with or anything like that. They're going to play good special teams. So I'm still expecting a relatively low-scoring game, but I do think Wisconsin is the better team overall. Like you said, whoever wins this, I think easily wins the Big Ten West because, like you said, just the amount of losses the other teams have already picked up, um, I don't think any other team's going to be able to catch them. And like you said, if Wisconsin wins, they already basically have like a three-game three, three game lead because they would have the tiebreaker over Iowa too. So mm-hmm. it really puts you in that, in the driver's seat very still early here in the season. Mm-hmm. Couple couple more games I will hit on real quick, then we'll get to our picks here. Texas A&M and Tennessee – 3.30 Eastern on CBS. Interested to see how A&M bounces back. That was kind of an emotional one. Jimbo and Nick Saban, we know the history there. Uh, tough luck for A&M, one of their cross-divisional games being Tennessee. The the volunteers coming off a bye. It's going to be at Neyland Stadium in Knoxville. The crowd's going to be awesome. Interested to see Tennessee is ranked 19th in the country. Um, I think Tennessee wins this game. They established themselves as the second-best team in the SEC East. If they lose this game, they already have two conference mm-hmm. losses. I think it really opens itself up. We'll see how A&M um, – we'll see how A&M can respond. Uh, kind of a sneaky big one in the Pac-12 at 8 o'clock Eastern on Fox. It's UCLA at Oregon State. Again, I, I, I think I think you have a, a tier of three teams at the top of the conference. It's USC, Oregon, Washington. But I, I do think UCLA – Oregon State and UCLA um, and Utah are in the next tier being like, all right, if one of those teams, you know, loses their quarterback for a couple games or loses a game they shouldn't, can one of those teams kind of step into the the kind of step into the race for the conference championship game? So that's an interesting one there. UCLA, you know, you go from hosting Washington State to having to go to Reister Stadium, night game in Corvallis, usually does not end well for the other team. So, and then Auburn and LSU, 7 o'clock Eastern uh, on ESPN. Interested to see if Auburn can put one together here. That's a team that struggles to pass the football. They struggle to be dynamic offensively. Uh, I like some of their run stuff. Um, but, you know, the over is like 62.5. And, and, and I I love LSU overs. They're the new North Carolina. But I just the way Auburn <laughs> plays, and the, way I, the way I think Hugh Freeze is going to want to play, take time off the clock, so on and so forth. But Auburn's going to get someone this year. Auburn's going to get, whether it's LSU on the road, whether it's Alabama at home. Like, Auburn, we saw them almost beat Georgia at home. Like, Auburn is going to beat somebody good this year. Hugh Freeze is too good of a coach not to do it. So, interested to see if LSU can escape uh, with a win there and keep their SEC championship uh, hopes alive. Any games catching your eye you want to hit on? Yeah, I think kind of going back to the late window, I think Miami at North Carolina, this was a game – Looking back, you know, with 40 seconds left in the Georgia Tech-Miami game, this looked like this was going to be a huge, huge game against two undefeated teams, not just in conference, but overall. Uh, Really trying to get a footing um, there in the ACC to see who might be battling Florida State um, in that ACC championship game. But instead, 
you have Miami coming over just maybe one of their most crushing losses uh, in a long time. What are they going to be like? Where is that headspace? Are they going to be able to regroup um, after a loss like that? And then you have North Carolina, who for most of the season has been on relative cruise control. I mean, their closest game that they played was against App State. That game went to overtime, and since then, they won 31-13 to over Minnesota, 41-24 to over at Pitt, and then just absolutely dismantled uh, Syracuse this past week, and that game was not even close at all. Um, does Notre Dame keep their foot on the pedal? They've got the best quarterback in that conference, the second-best quarterback, in my opinion, still in the country, and Jarek May. Um, I think that will be an intriguing match uh, just to see if North Carolina continues their push uh, for the ACC title game. And then staying in that window um, uh, later on, it's uh, Kentucky at Missouri. Um, I do think uh, you were ta- or Missouri at Kentucky, excuse me. You were kind of talking about Tennessee or just kind of the different tiers in the Pac-12. Um, I think you kind of have that in the SEC East. We keep talking about who's going to emerge as that second-best team. I think me and you both had said we think right now it would probably be Kentucky if we had to pick. Um, but Mizzou, once again, they're coming off a tough loss. Kentucky's coming off a, cl- a tough loss. Whoever wins this game, I think, puts themselves almost in the driver's seat, depending on what Tennessee does. Um, but I think a, a big chance for, for both of those teams to get a big win in prime time. Um, and whoever wins is also going to be bowl eligible uh, this early in the season as well. I think um, whoever wins, it sets up the opportunity for uh, a potentially special season for one of those two teams. Yep. All right, let's get to our picture before we wrap up. Lucas, another another tough one for you, bud. <sighs> another tough one. Got to get Lucas getting right here. Lucas, 0-3 on the week. The pick was minus 6.5 Notre Dame. Uh, Louisville wins outright. Purdue plus one and a half at Iowa. Purdue played hard. It was a competitive game. They lost by six. Over 56 and a half in Maryland, Ohio State. Boy, it looked good early. And I, I've got a bad beat on the Maryland game myself. Maryland puts up 17 like in the first quarter and a half. And just the Ohio State defense really stifles mm-hmm. them. Uh, total ends up being 54 there um, in Columbus. Uh, I went one and two. Uh, I lost Texas minus six and a half. Uh, my upset pick was Maryland plus 19 and a half. Lucas, how many points did Maryland lose by? Do you want to just guess? They lost by 20. They lost by 20. <laughs> that, that, that's correct. It was like seven. It was 17 to 10 at one point. I was like, I'm feeling great. There's no way. And then it slowly, just like a boa constrictor, squeezed the life out of me. Ohio State just kept scoring points, and Maryland did. Uh, I did hit the under in Iowa-Purdue. Uh, 39 and a half nice. there. Purdue. I bet that one as well. I didn't. It was on the sheet. I should yeah. have put that one on. There was a good call on your part. Yeah. So my season record is seven and twelve, Lucas. Your season record is five and fourteen. Oh my but let's goodness. let's put the. It's been three straight zero in three weeks, but let's just <laughs> that just means you're due. Okay, just mean it just means you're due. It just means that that the that the tide will turn around. So why don't you give us your uh, your your lock of the week here? Your lock of the week, good sir. Hey, I, I either want to be good enough that people can ride me, or good enough that people can make money fading off of me. So fade it, baby. <laughs> so let me see here. My my pick was a game we kind of talked about earlier. I'm taking Tennessee minus three against Texas A and M. I just have no idea what the mindset is going to be with AM going on the road in a hostile environment, especially playing a team coming off of a bye in Tennessee. Now, I haven't been overly impressed with Tennessee this season, but I think Tennessee will be able to attack their secondary, much like Alabama was going to be able to. 
Um, and I just think playing that game at uh, in Neyland, like you said, coming off of a bye, uh, I think Tennessee gets the win here. Because like we said, the two best teams we've seen in A&M play, they have lost to both of them. And I think that is going to continue against Tennessee this week as well. Uh, I am taking for my pick of the week, I am taking the over 67.5 in Oregon and Washington. I think you have two electric quarterbacks, two electric offenses. I think both teams get in the mid-30s. I think this is a 38-35 game, 42-35, 41-35, something like that. Uh, I think Penix and Bo Nix are going to put on a show. And uh, like you said earlier, like you said earlier in the pod, this almost guarantees a twenty to seven win for Oregon. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, my uh, my lock of the week, I'm going to take Duke minus three and a half at NC State or versus NC State. Um, I'm just really impressed with Duke. I continue to be impressed with them, and I just think this is a situation where they're just better than NC State. Uh, I think Duke is still playing for a lot. If you look at where they are. In the ACC, this is a team. They only have one ACC game so far, right? They're four and one, one and zero in the ACC. Um, and every time I watch NC State, now I didn't watch a lot of their game, but they gave up forty-one to Marshall. Mm-hmm. Before that, they they played Louisville very competitively, but Brennan Armstrong's been benched. They're playing MJ Morris. It just feels like that program's in a little bit of dysfunction, and I think Mike Elko and Duke um, coming off a bye uh, at home. Um, I think uh, Riley Leonard, we'll see if he plays or not. But give me give me Duke minus three and a half. I don't mind that, especially. Is Riley Leonard expected to play? Do you know? I don't I don't know exactly. Okay. I, I just I just I just I like Duke's defense and I, I it's more of a play on, on anti NC State. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't hate that. Like you said, NC State had to score forty eight points to beat Marshall this past week. Even against like UConn earlier in the year. I mean that win, they only beat them by 10. UConn has not won a game yet this year. They're currently 0-5 um, in the regular season. Yeah. Um, so, no, I do not mind that play at all. I am also taking another team by 3.5 points. Um, and I am actually taking uh, Kansas, the Fighting Lance Leipolds. I am taking them, Jalen Daniels or not. Um, I believe he is still going to be like a game-time decision. But I am taking Kansas minus 3 on the road at Oklahoma State. Uh, Oklahoma State actually had a pretty big win last week against Kansas State, so that worries me a little bit. Um, Alan Bowman actually looked pretty good. It looks like they finally settled on him as their quarterback. But I just think Kansas is going to be able to figure it out. I think they're going to be able to score some points against Oklahoma State. I think Kansas knows they have an opportunity available to them to potentially uh, maybe challenge either Texas or Oklahoma and kind of be that third-best team. in the Big 12, so I am taking them. I like their offense. I like how d- diverse, like even what Jalen Daniels had, they're like, screw it, we're just going to run it about 60 times, and <laughs> we're going to gain over 400 yards against UCF. So give me the Jayhawks minus 3.5 against Oklahoma State. It really is frustrating betting college football and just not knowing who's going to play the like, game to game. Like expecting to see Jalen Daniels play, and then it's like, oh, nope, there's Bean. Literally, oh, wait, where's – Ten minutes before they kick. No, yeah, no idea. The the Big Ten started to implement like mandatory yep. 
like injury updates like two hours before, and I wish more conferences would do that, but I don't think coaches will want to do that at all. All right, give us your your uh, underdog of the week, your upset. Uh, upset pick. So uh, speaking of gambling, we have a team that perfected the craft of it, um, except they got caught, and I'm taking Iowa State plus three and a half um, at Cincinnati. I think Iowa State's found something with uh, with Rocco Beck in this offense. They Ever since that Ohio loss, they had a nice win. Um, uh, they had a, you know, they took care of business against TCU this past week. They're now three and three. They win this. There's a really good chance that they could make a bowl, and that seemed kind of far fetched um, just a few weeks ago uh, when this offense was very anemic, could barely score ten points a game. But I think they've started to turn it around. Meanwhile, I do, I just don't think Cincy is really all that good. I think this is a close, contested game. Um, that's why I don't think, even if Cincinnati wins, I don't think it's by more than a field goal. Because even when Iowa State loses, it's by like a field goal or less, it seems like, every single time. So give me Iowa State plus three and a half on the road at Cincinnati. Like that, yeah. Iowa State, 2-1 and one in conference. They just uh, beat TCU by 13, like did it pretty easily. Yeah, they so. beat Oklahoma State Cyclone a couple weeks ago, too. Like, Yep. Cyclone's playing well. Uh, all right, give me the short favorite on the road as well. Give me USC plus two and a half at Notre Dame. Fourth, fourth straight week for Notre Dame. They're playing a really tough team. And I know USC was pushed to the brink. And, and USC has been playing with fire for the last handful of games. Um, but Notre Dame, I just wonder what they're going to have left. I mean, you're talking about Ohio State, Duke, Louisville. This is the fourth straight week they've played a ranked team. They're, they're one and two mm-hmm. in those games. Um, you just wonder what are they going to have left uh, just physically. Um, now, I do expect a higher-scoring game. I think they'll be able to score. But, man, oh, man, I, uh, I'm i getting USC as a dog in that spot. Give me USC plus two and a half all day. Yeah, hard hard not with Caleb Williams to not take them as an underdog uh, when you have the best player right. in the country. Um, all right, any final words for you before we uh, before we wrap up our, uh, our week seven show? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, we're already talking about Next week we're going to be doing our midweek or midseason reports already. The season has flown by. I can't believe some teams are already halfway done with their schedules already, but it simply happens every year, um, especially once you start getting games on Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> There's really no rest um, between one week to another. So, um, no, it's it's been super super fun so far. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'll be back in Wisconsin. This weekend for my, my grandma's 90th. So excited to watch the Wisconsin-Iowa game back in uh, in home territory. So it should be another fun-filled week of games this uh, this coming weekend. The uh, the next day without a football game is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving Whew. between NFL and college. It's pretty awesome. awesome. It's pretty awesome. We didn't touch on the Tuesday and Wednesday night matchups between Louisiana Tech, Middle Tennessee, UTEP, FIU, Sam Houston, Florida International, but you know if you're if you're a sicko like us, feel free. You got a lot of football on over the next month and a half. All right, it's gonna do it for us for Lucas Rody. I'm Ryan Baffalucas. Thank you for listening. Ready for the roses, and uh, we'll catch you next time.